Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. I am so excited to introduce our special guest today. Dr. Christy Hyman is an assistant professor of human geography. I want to hear about that because I don't even know what that is. At Mississippi State, she is a birder. She is blessed to live close to a couple of awesome ponds. Welcome, Christy. Thank you so much, Courtney. I'm so glad to be here. It is so good to have you. I I want to hear first how you got into birding. Why birds, Christy? Well, it was it was one of those things that life life's uh, different obstacles just provided a way for me to uh, attempt to heal. And so uh, during the pandemic, uh, along with so many other people in the world, uh, I was uh, touched by tragedy and I lost my son. Uh, I have two children, a daughter who was 23 and my son Ricky was 14 when he passed. And so I was in I was in my last year of PhD study and the loss was so profound I was uh I was immobile I was uh unable to do anything but look after my uh two cats try to look after uh my college attending adult daughter and just navigate the grief space so what was going on was I was sleeping most of the time and uh, my cat, one of my cats, Gimli, he would sleep on the bed with me. And uh, the bed was near one of those sliding door windows of an apartment. And one day I noticed that my cat was looking at the window, the patio window, very closely. And I was like, I wonder what Gimli's looking at. So I turned around and there was a uh, hummingbird. I... I had taken to buying plants uh, right after my son passed because it felt so, uh, it just felt safe in in a nursery. So me and my daughter were going to the nursery every week uh, because this was August, August of 2020. So I had salvias uh, hanging on the patio. Now I I just bought the plant because it looked pretty. I didn't, I didn't know type of pollinators that it would attract. Hmm. I didn't even know that hummingbirds came to Nebraska because that's where I was living at the time. Because, you know, Nebraska is in a kind of difficult uh, zone when it comes to plants. So I was kind of limited in what plants I could get. But the hummingbird was there and I studied it and I just, a, a wave of comfort and warmth came over me to see that beautiful bird, that beautiful tiny bird, just hovering and getting the nectar from the salvia. And so it piqued my interest to learn about the hummingbirds. And what I learned was just how difficult their lives are 
how they have to go over entire swaths of ocean and landscapes, sometimes against the wind, sometimes during terrible storms. And it just made me feel like a twinned purpose with this mm -hmm. bird, like the same storm that I'm battling as a grieving mother, this bird is battling the storm of survival every day in life, trying to feed itself, trying to feed its young, trying to, you know. So that's what sparked it. That's mm. what sparked my interest in birds. So it was kind of a, a, a healing space activity for me. Mm. I love that the path took you through the plant nursery and into the world of birds. Nature can be such a profound instrument in in our healing i'm so sorry for the loss of your son thank you and and it feels like the pandemic was such a difficult time for grief for so many people because normally we grieve together and we grieve together over food and we grieve together in community whether that's you know your church or your music group or your you know gathering of professors where you can you can pour out those griefs together but to be so isolated i think drove more people into the world of nature which is its own its own sort of gift. It is. And that's totally the case with grieving in, in the pandemic. And this was before, this was 2020. So this was before the first vaccinations started to go out. So at that time, you know, people were still kind of, you know, things were slowly opening up, but of course people were still very much cognizant of this, of this uh, virus. And so, yes, people were very much, kind of isolated on their own little islands. Mm. Well, we are focusing on spring migration for this episode, which is, it, it's just astonishing to me. Like you said, these tiny little hummingbirds have to battle so much just for survival. It feels like if the hummingbird just lived in, in my backyard its entire life, that would be enough of a battle for survival because we have hawks and we have crows and we have cats that wander the neighborhood. But the fact that they fly across the Gulf of Mexico, some of them, they fly all the way up from South America, some of them. Tell me a little bit about spring migration. If, if I know nothing about birding, what are the birds doing in spring? <laughs> well, I, I will speak of bird migrations from uh, the perspective of when I lived in the Great Plains in Nebraska. Because Perfect. I moved to Starkville in July. So I was only able to see fall migration here. Uh, so essentially, bird migration, there, there are a regular two-way movement of birds that, ha that have evolved uh, to assure space and food and for raising offspring, as well as, you know, increased overwinter survival. So there's these internal rhythms uh, kind of related to their reproductive cycle that are triggered uh, by the changing amounts of daylight and that prompts the migration. So uh, the weather conditions, of course, influence the dates of departure and the pace of their advancement toward a destination. And so in the Great Plains, at least, most of the uh, spectacular natural events, you know, require millions of birds to move in different directions for breeding grounds, either northward or southward, uh, for large from to go over large expanses of grasslands, wetlands and, and grain fields. So, of course, people come to Nebraska for the whooping crane. Uh, it's one of the most renowned plains migrant. And uh, 
they they fly over the Arkansas National Wildlife Refuge along the Texas coast, you know, Wood uh, Buffalo National Park along the borders of Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Northwest Territories, and they use a pathway that uh, covers the north to south extent of the Plains region, and so you have. Uh, the flight strategies of other plains migrants, such as raptors like the burrowing owl and ferruginous hawk, shorebirds like the upland sandpiper and the long-billed curlew, and uh, red-necked phalaropes and songbirds like harris sparrows, clay-colored sparrows. Of course, bald eagles uh, come and they are one of the first migrators during the early spring. And then the, uh, the sandhill cranes, ducks and geese, and later in spring, shorebirds, and they're followed by songbirds. And uh, some migrant songbirds, such as the dick sizzle, they arrive on breeding grounds in the northern plains, while you know individuals of the same species may have completed their meeting in the uh, southern plains and start their migration to uh, various uh, wintering grounds. So when, when I think about what was happening uh, with migration when I when I first experienced it in, in my first spring as a birder, what I would do is I would I would always notice the arrival of spring migration because we start seeing those grackles again. Mm. And uh <laughs> and you know grackles they're quite a comical bird and uh they they're fun to watch even though some people think they 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 can be they have somewhat of a mob mentality at feeders, but uh, they're interesting and they're very clever. And when you start seeing them, when you start seeing the different types of Baltimore Orioles, you see uh, the orchard Oriole. And in Nebraska, you also see some warblers that come through. And you just you just see all these birds and you just you just go, wow. This is this is where one of the stopover sites. This is where mm. they're coming to get munitions on their way to go somewhere else. You see the brown thrashers, and you also notice that your wintering birds, you don't see so much of them anymore. So mm. you don't see your dark-eyed juncos as much. You don't see your hair sparrows as much. And um and you don't see, you know, the, the the bald eagles. They what they would do during the winter. They would they would go to these large lakes in Lincoln. One of them was Pawnee Lake, and you would you could see them hunting for fish. Uh, you know, maybe sometimes Canada geese would be in the uh, in the in the vicinity, but you don't see them. So in some ways, with spring migration. For for those of us birders who are just really attached to every single bird, it's a it's a welcoming, but it's also a, a goodbye for those uh, for those wintering birds who were so hardy and mm. gave something to look at uh, while you while it was so cold outside. Because mm. I would I would bird in twelve degrees if the roads didn't have snow or sleet or ice on them. I go right out there in bird with my big lens and I would watch the skies for for a raptor of some kind because you can mm. depend on those raptors even in winter, especially mm. if the wind was up. But uh, when it comes to spring migration, 
it's one of those things where you know that the birds are going to be looking their absolute best because uh, they're going to be finding partners to, to mate with. And they are going to have the most vivid colors to them. This is them at their most beautiful. Hmm. Because after spring migration, you're going to get into summer. And these birds are tired because they have had to, the fledglings have been squawking and screaming and saying, feed me, feed me. And you see them on the ground, flapping their little wings and uh, like, put more food in my mouth, put more food in my mouth. And you just feel for them. And they, you see the woodpeckers try to try to uh, teach their young how to get the food on their own. And they still want mom or pop to put the food in their mouth. So those birds are tired by summer mm. and they're starting and you don't see them as much. You you will see them if you go early in the morning. But in the summertime, a lot of birders put up their hat because they're like, we're not going to see that much because the birds are, um, the adults are quite tired and uh, the fledglings are, you know, they're, they're getting adjusted, but also the heat is, is terrible. So birds don't want to be out in terrible elements no more than anyone else so they try to go early in the morning get their food and then they're you know somewhere shaded out trying not to uh you know get completely scorched plus they start uh molting uh probably like around late july or august Mm -hmm. and so they're losing some of their feathers uh some of us have seen those pictures online of uh northern cardinals with no feathers on their head and it looks a bit different uh, we see the blue jays. Some, I've seen some blue jays in molt. I've seen northern cardinals in molt, and also uh, Carolina wrens. Uh, and they sometimes they don't even look like themselves, and it affects their ability to fly when they don't have all their feathers about them. Mm-hmm. So that means they're more vulnerable to uh, predation. So that's another reason why in late summer. You, you just don't see as many birds unless you're unless you go out early in the morning during, you know, peak feeding time where they just have to where they just have to forage for food. So mm. so spring migration is kind of ushering in of that beauty. And alongside of that, we're seeing the, the spaces where these birds are coming to to find food, to build nests. And the places look different. We're noticing that uh, the leaves are growing back in. So spring migration, though, it's it's wonderful and exciting for birders who like to do bird photography like myself. You have to be really stealthy because those birds are darting in those beautiful green leaves and that foliage. So you're only the birds like Baltimore Orioles, for instance, they they they're not terribly shy. And they usually will, will perch at a high point, and that brilliant orange and black is unmistakable. So, boom, click, you get you get the uh, you get the picture. But something like a um, a, a, a flycatcher of some kind that's already kind of a small bird, yeah, they're going in and out, and uh, it, it, you're gonna have to be quick with your uh, with your photos. <laughs> 
I have a, I'm not a photographer, but I have a bird photographer friend who says warblers are just slightly blurry. I'm not taking slightly <laughs> blurry photos of them. They just inherently, they move so much. They are, that's one of their qualities. They're, they're slightly blurry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christy, I will link to, um, with your permission, your Twitter profile and things like that in the show notes, because you take these beautiful photographs and even in the captions that you leave for them in the descriptions, there's such a love for these birds. It's one of the things I love about following you and social media. It's not just a robin. You clearly love this robin and you spent time with this robin and or this blue jay and, and your photographs are so wonderful. So after several spring migrations in Nebraska, you're about to experience your first spring migration in Mississippi. What are you looking forward to? What are you going to be training your lens on? I'm going to be looking for uh, the arrival of the uh, just, uh, it's just, it's just such a big list because Mississippi having a coastline and being by the Gulf of Mexico and just it being so moist here and the the swampiness and the vegetation, it attracts so many different birds. And my hope is that I'll get to see, uh, I'm hoping and praying that I'll get to see a painted bunting in my lifetime because there are people here who have who have seen the painted bunting. Mm. Now, what, the person who told me that they saw one, uh, this is my colleague and friend, Brian Williams, he said he saw one while he was uh, kayaking. Mm. So some of these birds, you really have to kind of be in the thick of vegetation in order to see them. Like it's not one of those deals where you can just park on the side of the road and, and look at the edge the edge of the vegetation and, and, and see, you know, belly kingfisher and northern cardinal and northern flicker and all these things. No, you, you some of these birds, you really got to get into the thick of the brush. And with alligators being a, a, a resident here, you kind of don't want to, you know, get too, too close uh, for comfort. Yeah. Because I, you know, I've know I've heard of some birders who are, you know, they put their waders on and they go out in these marshes. And the next thing you know, they, they're, they're wrestling alligators. <laughs> so, um, so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to go on that adventure, but yeah, I'm hoping I'll see the painted bunting. I'm hoping to see, uh, of course, the ruby throated uh, hummingbird to come back. And I mean, it's so, it's so many birds that I see here, especially when I first got here in July, I saw so many little blue herons. I saw white ibis, even the glossy ibis had come. I didn't get the chance to see them, but they had come to Knox City National Wildlife Refuge, which is where I bird here in Starkville. Um, it's, it's, it, it straddles uh, Knox City County and Octavaha County, which is where Starkville is. And so I would see the little blue heron, I see the green heron, I, and you would see them and they'd be hanging out with the juveniles and see, because I had never, I never saw a little blue heron before. I didn't realize that the juvenile was this all white bird that looked just like the little blue heron. The only, you, you would, you would mistake it for perhaps a great egret, a small, a small size great egret or a snowy egret. But I was like, that beak looked different. And I was like, oh, that is a, that's why it hangs close with the little blue hair. And so 
you'll see them. And if I go uh, further south to Biloxi or Ocean Springs, Mississippi, that's when I might even see the magnificent frigate bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you see uh, American oyster catchers. I mean, you just see so you see black skimmers. You see so many amazing uh, birds that you wouldn't necessarily see on a day-to-day basis. And so I have my uh, hummingbird feeders uh, on standby, is it ready to fill them up with nectar when it comes. And I'm also going to invest in a, a one-person blind for my porch, for my side porch. And I'm just gonna seat it there, have a little coffee up under it. And when spring migration starts here in Starkville, I'm going to be I'm going to be ready to see what's coming cuz I know it's going to be spectacular. Mm. Greatest show on earth. Greatest <laughs> show on earth. Christy, tell me about birding blinds. I've never used one, but I hear that they can be very, very helpful, especially, I know you like to wear lots of bright colors. I like to wear lots of bright colors. And I'm realizing as I go out birding, I need to tone it down a little bit because I'm scaring away the birds. So what is <laughs> what is a bird blind? What is the benefit of a bird blind? Well, a bird blind is this, it's a lot of it, a lot, well, it has so many uses. Birders can use them, but of course, professional wildlife photographers use them. And of course, people who hunt use them. And so what it does, it it provides a uh, camouflage type of print. It's the same print that you see uh, hunts hunts people wearing uh, when they, you know, finish deer hunting, the little coats and stuff they wear. It's that print, that camouflage print that looks like nature. And it essentially... It's, it's, it looks like it's designed to look like a part of vegetation mm. so that birds and animals think that it's just some weird looking bush. Some of them actually look like bushes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Some, d- depending on your price point, you can look like a bush. But um, <laughs> goals. I'm going <laughs> to get the one that's just, you know, a flat camouflage print. And you can get them uh, for groups. You can get them a four person, two person, one person. And since my little side porch is kind of small, I'll just get it for one person. And you can put one of those little camping chairs inside. And what you do is you get your tripod and you have your lens or your spotting scope uh, situated uh, to look out at birds. So you get yourself from into a perspective and reference point where you can see as many birds as possible. And those birds are like, oh, okay, it's not moving. It's not making a sound. We'll we'll do what we want. And we'll give out a a show inadvertently. I love it. We we have a kindergarten son who builds a fort every day. And this feels like the birder grown-up version of that. <laughs> it totally is. It totally is. It's the birder, it's the birder fort. <laughs> I have my snacks and my blanket and my, my bug spray and I'm all set to go. <laughs> well, Christy, you congratulations on your new professorship. I know finishing, I'm married to a PhD and and I watched firsthand all that work getting done and it is a big deal to finish. It's a big deal to get that first appointment. Tell me about human geography. What is that? What do you do? What are you teaching? Well, I'll tell you, human geography is, it's the study of the, well, here's kind of a, uh, a kind of jargonistic 
type of description, but it's the study of aerial differentiation over landscapes and space in its relation to humans. So that encompasses, Mm. believe it or not, a ton of stuff. (laughs) And because human, you will find human geographers in sociology departments, Mm. history departments, foreign language departments, because geography is a type, it's it's an undiscipline. It's an undiscipline. It's a synthesis of a million things. It's mobility, it's transport, it's it's people in their connection to spaces, it's it's the space itself, it's all types of things. In contrast to physical geography, which is mm-hmm. usually the description of the Earth's surface across various terrains and uh, the, the various processes uh, on the Earth's surface. And that one's considered a little bit more uh, field field site focused. With human geography, you talk, you can you can build your study of talking to people about their relation to a space. Mm-hmm. I went to school with people whose master's thesis was on the spatial dimensions of uh, set design in hmm. uh in in the play rent hmm. so that's what i mean where it can go in so many directions hmm. people do it on food security food studies the relation between uh income and tax base in relation to food deserts i mean and sometimes it's it's something that you know how children conceive and perceive of space Mm. It's sometimes very literary. The spatial dimensions of Charles Dickinson's corpus between 1860. I mean, it literally goes all over the place. I can see implications for conservation too, how people are relating to a space and how that affects the animals that also abut that space or want to use that space. That's fascinating. Yes, because uh, with animals and things and conservation and resource management, like especially like with federal agencies like the U.S. Forest Service and National Wildlife Refuges, they they are concerned with, uh, of course, the the management of resources on their site. So this could span from, you know, trying to cut down invasive species and trying to measure the extent of it or also wildlife species that may be endangered and how they facilitate the uh, the road making of a particular site. So it, they don't want to interrupt a zone where a, a particular uh, wildlife um, animal may be crossing uh, for its survival. So when it comes to geography, you have technical tools like GIS, Geographic Information Systems or Science, and they can use those types of things to build spatial models that try to predict uh, ways of understanding how to arrange a space in a locality. So if mm. they're trying to find uh, alternative paths for a particular red wolf to cross through this particular expanse of a site. So it can it goes all over the place. Mm. That's really interesting. What what excites you most about this next semester with your students? 
Well, with this sem- this semester, I'm actually teaching uh, the African diaspora because mm. I was hired. I was hot. My home, my tenure home is in the Department of Geosciences for Human Geography. Mm. But I was also hired as a core faculty member to teach at least once one course semester related to African-American studies or the diaspora. Mm. So uh, because it's my first year as an assistant professor, I'm given the option of what they call a course release. So I usually teach two classes. But um, I opted to only teach one so I can find my way and connect with people and build my research program. Enjoy so, spring migration. Yes, and enjoy <laughs> spring migration. And regale my uh, other bird like minded colleagues with my latest photos. But um, but I'm teaching the African diaspora. I also developed a course called Sensory Geographies. It did mm. not get a chance to make though because you know students these days they're trying to. The elect when it comes to electives, they're, they're trying to get out. So because it was an elective and because I was mm. new, uh, it didn't it didn't make. You have to have at least ten seats, and mm. I only got like three. But I had so much fun designing that course because what I was gonna teach was I was gonna teach the understanding of space from the understanding of uh, a subject in, in space. So. What does space look like for someone whose range of movement is only a house? Mm-hmm. What is how how do they order space and how do they anchor space when their uh, mobility is extremely limited? Mm-hmm. And kind of contrast that with the understanding of space in a building that's sixteen stories, mm-hmm. or the understanding of space in the panorama that you mm-hmm. that look at from a particular uh from a t- particular point like an overlook uh on the side of the road you're you know during a in a mountain range or something like that mm-hmm. so we were going to talk about how how that is conceived on the subject level on each individual subject level and then look at some studies on uh how that helps people develop a mode for routing and packing and moving through spaces that they may not be familiar with. How does the limitations on understanding space affect one's decision-making to venture out to something unknown? Fascinating. Well, I hope that that course gets a chance to fly in the future because it sounds like there's wonderful potential there. Yeah, I hope so too. Even if, even if I don't get to teach it on, on the books here, I can always like do a workshop at a conference about it. So totally. That's totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, between your your teaching and your birding and the the enjoyment that we are both looking forward to with spring migration, where are you finding hope these days? Well, I tell you, over Christmas break, I went to my happy place, which is Tucson, Arizona. I went there and because, you know, the holidays are difficult on grievers. Yeah. Um, it, they just are because it's this it's this forced happiness and cheeriness that you just have to have. And it's kind of it's fatigue. It fatigues me. So mm-hmm. I said, let me go to my happy place. And I drove all the way to Tucson, Arizona, and I made sure to go to Madeira Canyon, 
Mm-hmm. And I saw a uh, Stellar's J for the first time. And I was elated because I had tried to see it when I went to Boulder, Colorado that summer in 2022. I did not see it. I went all over. Mm-hmm. I did not see that bird. And that's where it's supposed to be. But <laughs> when I went to Madeira Canyon, I saw it at the feeders by uh by the lodge, by that that super swanky cool birder lodge at Madeira Canyon. Name escapes me at the moment. But mm-hmm. I saw Stellar's Jay. And so when I put it in the eBird, it's it's flagged that it's rare. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I I be dog. I saw it. It's it's considered errant at this t- time of the year hmm. it to be in that part of the world. So I was like, okay, that was sweet. That made me feel so blessed. Yeah. There's something so I mean, I know you you work in the sciences, and so this this word may not be the word you would choose, but there's something magical about being visited by a bird that isn't supposed to be there. There's the vagrant or the rare bird and and you're just in the right place at the right time. 10 minutes later and you would have missed it. 10 minutes earlier and you would have missed it. And I think blessed is, that's how I feel. This this rush of delight and this this is amazing. And I got to witness this and the bird doesn't care, but I care. Yeah, I got some, I got some good photos of it too. Mm, I oh. was like, word, I, I took like, I probably took like 40 pictures of that bird. Stella's Jays um, are so photogenic. They got the hairdo. They got the whole thing. Yeah, they're they're hanging with the uh, Mexican Jays and and the Arizona woodpeckers. And they were just having a grand old time. So that was was my happy place. Because, you know, Tucson, their winter is just like amazing. (laughs) Because it it gets to like, what, like 70 degrees sometimes. It gets down to like maybe 40 and for somebody who lived in Nebraska for six years, <laughs> 40 degrees is a walk in the park. You wear I'm shorts. Negative four <laughs> with wind blowing. So that 40 is like work. But, you know, people in Arizona who live there year round, they're like, I like this cold. <laughs> My kids, we live in Southern California and my kids will say, well, do we have to go to school? It's raining. And I'm like, you, you have no idea how spoiled you are. This is, most places have weather and people just tough it out. <laughs> well, Christy, I love. Yeah, you were originally from Wisconsin, right? Yes. I grew up in Wisconsin. And I mean, we, we wouldn't cancel school for snow. We rarely had a snow day. We occasionally would cancel school because it was too cold. Like if your car breaks down, you'll die. So you should all stay home. Yes. Yeah. I used to be tougher than I am now. I've become I've become soft in my in my California days. Well, Christy, oh. what is your favorite bird? If you had to narrow it down to just one, what's your favorite? I would have to say my favorite bird right now would be the purple finch. Mm. And that is because I would I, so my little feeding station. It contains mostly uh, house finches, uh, American goldfinches, northern cardinals, red-breasted nuthatch, um, ruby, cr- ruby crown kinglet, um, bounty woodpecker, and red red uh, belly woodpecker. So mm. I'm I'm looking at all, and of course, Caroline, she could be Caroline Red. But I'm looking at all these house finches 
And I said to myself, that one look different. Because at first I saw the, the girl, the female. It's like she looks a little bit different. Her, sometimes her eyes were more darkened and her stripings on her breasts were more vivid looking. And so I said, let me run it through Merlin. Ran it through Merlin and said, purple fence. I was like, ooh, okay. But I didn't see her with like a maid or anything. So I said, okay, maybe her presumable partner may show up a little later. Mm-hmm. So every day I'm looking at those fences because, you know, fences get, they get a little crazy at the fields. They're fighting everything. And I finally saw, but he acted so shy. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was in the leaves and there was an American goldfinch across the fence and he kind of looked at them kind of sideways. And I was taking hundreds, thousands of pictures and um, I got some good ones. But I ran it, I ran it through Merlin to make sure. And I and lo and behold, it was a purple finch. Hmm. And every time I see a bird like that, I I go and I read about it a whole lot. And it started pulling up other birds that kind of look like that. And it and it was like the Cassins finch and uh these they call them the rose finches. And I was just like, they're so beautiful. Hmm. I have a lot of trouble distinguishing house finches from purple finches. You really need an eye for it. You really need to be a keen observer. And I love that you noticed the female first and noticed she was different because those differences are even more subtle. Yes. Yes, because see, <laughs> I have a side door. And what I do is, because it's chilly in Mississippi right now. And so what I do is I put a jacket on in my own house <laughs> and I just kind of edge myself and I had the camera. That's why I'm getting a blind. So I don't have to do all this contortions. And I, so I, so they're kind of close to me. They're, they're mm. very close to me. They're, they're like within the, the, my feeders are within uh, 14 feet of me. Mm. So it's very close. So I, but I still use my big lens because what, because it makes my, my big lens, for some reason, the quality and precision of the feathers just shows up so much better knowing mm. I use my shorter one. But um, but yeah, that's that's how I can really look at them very closely and stuff because I'm 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 looking through my screen door and I'm all stealthy and I, I'm just studying them. And so yeah, and in uh the the white throated sparrows as well. They 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 would go in at number two right now because that beautiful song, Old Sam Peabody. Oh my God, they sing it all through the winter and it's just so beautiful. So they, I like, I, I those. I, I'll say right now, my two favorites are White Throated Sparrow and Purple Finch. I love it, and and that is the thing about so many birders is the favorite might change tomorrow because we just love them all. You know that that first place ranking it comes and goes depending on what's in the yard or what you've seen. How does your birding influence your faith? How does your faith influence your birding? I know uh, your grief work is probably a, a piece of that as well. Yes, it's it's profoundly uh, important, and. Uh, as an academic, you, people kind of don't like to talk about uh, faith and things. Um, and so I I don't talk about it really like in the workplace, 
but on my in my spaces online I will I will talk about you know my love of God and how I feel like the Lord it was a it was the Lord who allowed me unbeknownst to myself to pick out these particular tubular plants mm. that that the ruby-throated hummingbird would have liked. And because I, I feel like God was saying, this woman doesn't care if she lives or dies at this point because she's mm. in so much despair. And I just need to give her some type of lifeline to give her some type of purpose. And so that's how I, that's how I conceive of my birding. That's why I, I call it like mystic birding because mm. it's, it's in one way, it's in one way something very natural, but for me, it's a no, it's an entirely different plane that sees the bird almost as a messenger of God to keep going. And I feel like the birds that I'm blessed to see or blessed to notice, whether I'm in my backyard or it knocks me or driving down the road and I'm stopping because I see some type of raptor. It's God saying, keep going. That, mm. That's how I conceive of it. And mm. the birds that I see like over and over and over, no matter where I'm, where I am, like belted kingfishers and redheaded woodpeckers, I was seeing those. I was driving from Nebraska to, uh, to, uh, Leelanau, north of Michigan. I kept seeing those birds the whole ride everywhere I stopped. And mm. I said to myself, I, to, I, I talk to my son sometimes and I say, Ricky, these must be your favorite birds mm. because you keep showing them to me. And, you know, to most people, they're like, oh, my God, this one is crazy. But it once you embody that type of spiritual understanding, it totally seems very real. Mm. And many people believe the Northern Cardinal is a messenger of uh, people's beloved in heaven. And so when they see them, you know, a, a wave of peace comes over them because they feel like it's their loved one saying, I'm, I'm okay mm. and uh, keep going. So, yes, I feel like God provided birding to me as a, as a lifeline. Mm. And, you know, my family, they were very worried about me um, because you know, people worry after a person loses a loved one because, you know, the, the people can die of a broken heart. Mm-hmm. And so they were they were glad that I took up birding, but they they kind of thought I went overboard because I would go. <laughs> I would drive all the way to uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And they're like, Christy, why don't you fly? And I'm like, because if I fly, I'm not going to be over land and I can't see the birds along the road. It's going to be more birds as I go up the road and I can stop at this refuge or this park or this lake on the way there and get even more birds. So plus, you know, flying, I I, I fly, but I, I've always been uncomfortable with it, even though I do it because you have to, but mm. it, it, I, it, I have, I have to really psych myself up to fly. So I, you know, I, I'd rather drive. And uh, and they were like, oh, you're going crazy. You're going, my mom, you're going to run that car to death. I'm like, I'll just keep getting it serviced. Yeah. 
Yeah, because the journey is a piece of it. Think of all the birds you miss if you if you fly over and you can leave the flying to the birds. I respect yes. that. Yes. <laughs> I love that. The first roadrunner I ever saw was at a gas station. You know, it was between point A and point B. And I look over and my husband's like, I think that's a roadrunner. And he's not a birder. So first of all, I was impressed that he noticed it. Second of all, I was impressed that he knew what it was, but it was so exciting. You don't want to miss all the things in between. Yeah, I love roadrunners too. They... I had a very close encounter with one just this past December at um, at, at one of the um, national parks in Tucson. I, my, I have such a bad memory for remembering names of places. I think it was the Coronado National Forest, something like that. But mm. he, he was, he or she was just standing there looking at me. And, and it was near like a people place. Like it wasn't out um, up toward the cactus and stuff. And he was just looking at me and it was, it was right by me. And that's, that's what kind of threw me. Cause I know they are, they kind of on a different side when it comes to birds, but I didn't know they were so comfortable being close to a person. So I said, okay, you're going to sit there. Then here comes the camera. <laughs> so I got 12 pictures. <laughs> he was there for his photo shoot. He's like, hey, check this out. They do. And they look like cartoons. You know, they look like they were put together by a toddler's drawing class. Like nothing is in proportion and the legs are funny and the beak is funny. And oh, I just, I just love them. Well, Christy, where can people find you and read your beautiful research? You have you have photos out there. You have research out there. You also have some beautiful grief blogging as you write about the loss of your son and kind of walking through that. Where can people connect with you? Yeah, so I have a, uh, a, a space called Random Nature Pod. So if you just go to randomnaturepod.org, uh, uh, that pulls up all the pictures and it takes you to all the places where I have a, a digital presence. I have Random Nature on Instagram. I have it uh, as a blog. I have Bird Lady of Turtle Island as a blog. I have that also as a Instagram. So I'm kind of all over the place. One of my colleagues was like, that probably takes a whole lot of time. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Hey, it's, it's what I do. You know, I don't really, I don't go out much. I don't really shop much. And, you know, life's obstacles and tragedy made me an empty nester at the age of 43. So mm. that's, that's what I do. Mm. I indulge people with these birds and, and I'm blessed by it. You are wonderfully prolific, and I have been so blessed by your bird photos, by your writing. I will link to all those things in the show notes. Thank you, especially because you've been in Nebraska and now you're in Mississippi. You are posting so many photos of birds I don't have out here in California, so you are meeting a need in my soul. Thank you. <laughs> my pleasure. Well, everyone connect with Christy, follow Christy. Christy, thank you so much for the gift of your time, your wisdom, your expertise. And I just look forward to, to viewing all of your spring migration pictures. All righty. Thank you. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up.
to tickle your soul. Yes, it does.